1: The year is 1179, and there's rebellion brewing for King Henry II. The king's son, Richard, earns his name of Lionheart, crushing rebels in Aquitaine. But treachery and betrayal lurk around every corner.
0: A burst of laughter caught my attention, and I turned my head. The young king had told a joke. His father nodded and smiled. Geoffrey had tears of mirth running down his cheeks. Richard was banging the table in appreciation. Only John had not joined in. To my horror, he was staring at me, his eyes cold and dead. I looked away, my heart pounding. It had not been the Duke's intention, but his scold had set John against me. I was sure of it. A moment later, when I dared to glance again, I was mightily relieved that John's attention had moved on. A nasty feeling lingered in my mind, however, that I had made a new enemy.
1: In his new novel, Lionheart, Ben Kane, best-selling author of fiction set in the Roman Empire, turns his attention to the Middle Ages and the rise of Richard the Lionheart. In this edition of Historical Fiction, Tristan Hughes talks to Ben Kane about how he started out on a new series of thrilling historical adventures.
0: This is Historical Fiction.
1: Ben, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Tristan. Great to be here. Now, you're well known for writing historical fiction on ancient Rome, but your newest book is set in a period more than a millennium later.
2: Yes, I've got a name for writing books set in ancient Rome because I've written 13 of them. It not something that i wanted to be stuck in by choice though i've been fascinated by history all history since i was a small boy and i've long wanted to write books set in other time periods but the maxim when it ain't broke don't fix it and publishing is a conservative industry my publishers have for years just said oh will you write another roman book will you write another roman book and so on The Eagles at War trilogy was supposed to be a 100 Years War series, and I had all the plot lines written out and everything, but then I had a meeting with my publishers before I started to write the first one, and they said, oh, we're not sure 100 Years War will do, look at the market, here's Author X, he's writing 100 Years War, and the sales figures aren't brilliant, which I was very surprised by, but my books pay my mortgage, and they feed my kids, so... I thought, you know, I'm not going to hang my hat on having to write a particular series. So I wrote another Roman trilogy and then another couple of Roman books. But I moved publishers in that time and the new publisher made it a requirement of my contract that I write a non-Roman book, which was for me was a mixture of excitement and terror because here was the thing I'd wanted being handed to me on a plate on my contract. But it meant I had to do it. Because, you know, I've written so many books now in ancient Rome that I can write from, say, 300 BC to 50 AD. I could probably write a novel without having to look at a textbook. But when you go into a different time period, you're suddenly back to ground zero. So it was terrifying, but very exciting. And I picked Richard the Lionheart, and the publisher did backflips with excitement, and that was how it came about.
1: Why did you decide to tell your publisher that you wanted to centre this new book around Richard the Lionheart?
2: It's a combination of things. I mean, some readers may be surprised to know that you've got to keep an eye on the market when you're deciding to write a book. There's an author who's a client of my agent, and he has a saying. It's something along the lines of You can write the best written book in the world about the little known civilization in southern India in the 8th century BC who made pottery. You could write that to the standard of Hilary Mantel or Sebastian Fawkes, say, but nobody would buy it. They've never heard of those people. And so your sell in the bookstore, in the supermarket shelf, is really difficult. So you've got to, unfortunately, have an idea that will stand out. And you've also got to look at what everyone else is writing. So what's Bernard Cornwell writing? What's Wilbur Smith writing? What are the other people who, friends and colleagues and rivals of mine, what are they writing? Because you don't want to necessarily do the same thing. So Napoleonic period, how many, there must be seven or eight authors with big long series about either the naval or the military aspect. It's a great period, but would it do well? Who knows? And Richard the Lionheart, I mean, I've been interested in him and the Third Crusade since I was a kid, because it was a fantastic children's author who's probably little known now, but his name was Ronald Welch, and he wrote really, really good books. And there was one of his called Night Crusader, which was about a young Frankish noble who was actually from Outremer, or the Holy Land. And he was coming to manhood at the time of the Battle of Hatton, which is when... The Christian forces were wiped out pretty much by Saladin. And it's what led to Richard the Lionheart's crusade. And uh, it was a great, great book and Richard's in it. And so I thought of him and I went and did a bit of research and I hadn't fully appreciated his intricate and terribly conflicted family history, fighting with his father and his brothers. And it just screams novel, epic film. And he didn't just do that, obviously. He had this arch enemy, the King of France, Philippe Capet. And then he went to the crusade and he was taken prisoner on the way back. And he had his brother, John, as everyone knows, creating problems. And so there's just an amazing story there. And the number of contemporary accounts that survive is also astonishing. So used to writing novels, sometimes like Spartacus, for example, I wrote two novels about him. The entire Roman text that survives about him comes to 4,000 words. That's 10 pages of a textbook. That's all we know. So you can get your information about the society and everything, but you don't know any more about Spartacus in 10 pages. Richard's Crusade to the Holy Land, for example, there are no less than five complete first-hand accounts. So I was just like a child given the keys to Hamley's toy shop in London. Like, oh, here's all this stuff. I don't have to make it up. It's all just written down here. Even the curses and what they used to call each other and stuff like that. So, um... Yeah, I just get so excited about the topics I write about. And I've learned that when I feel like that, it's a good topic for a book. And the publisher thought so too. So I set out and started researching the basis and the background for Lionheart.
1: Now, you mentioned there all the sources we have available compared to ancient Rome. And this first book, Lionheart, it's set before his crusade in the Holy Land and the battles with Saladin. Did you want this first book to focus on the early part of Richard's career before he was king?
2: Yes, I did. The thing about writing novels, I was going to write a trilogy or plan to write a trilogy, is how you work out your time frame and his childhood we know almost nothing about. So although I I mentioned those good sources, his early life is the historical record is empty, sadly. And then we know little bits from when he was about 14, 15 and up to the age of about 18. And then there are a couple more holes until he was in his early 20s. And then we know quite a bit. And then in the lead up to the sort of major fallout with his father and his brothers rebelling against the father when he didn't, this is the 1180s, there are sections we know a lot about. And then his final rise to the throne in 1189, we know a lot about as well. And so I could have written four novels. I could have written one about Richard, the young man, but I decided partly because of the historical evidence and also because I wanted to have a main character who wasn't Richard, the device being that when you have a character like that, a fictional character in the historical framework, you can make him do things that lace the story together and It means when you have to make stuff up, you use that character so that you don't have Richard the Lionheart doing something that we didn't know he did or that he definitely didn't do. And I was very keen to have a main Irish character because I'm Irish. And so the Normans, although they were known as the English by then, the English had invaded Ireland in 1169. That was when Richard was 12. So by 1179, he was 22 and there was a ten-year span from then to when he became king, and I decided to set the novel starting in 1179, with a young Irishman who had been taken prisoner after his family had been fighting the Normans/English and had lost, and he was sent to Chepstow Castle, which was the stronghold of the De Clare family. Richard De Clare, having been a man called Strongbow, who was the man who invaded Ireland, and only later gave his allegiance to Henry II. And so that was the device I used to introduce him to England slash Wales. And then I had a period when Lionheart was visiting England looking for soldiers and the historical record is silent. We don't know where he was. And that's when he meets the main character. Well, he's Richard the Lionheart's the main character. There are two main characters.
1: That's interesting. So you can use the scarcity of sources for Richard's early life to construct the story that fits in this Irish fictional protagonist.
2: Yes, it's something I've learned. My first novels, I, I suppose I was learning my trade like anybody. When you're learning to drive a car, you're not as good before you get your license for the first year or two. But when you've been doing it for a long time, you would hopefully are a good driver. So I've obviously a lot more skill at doing that now, and it was relatively easy to work that out. But I had to try and maintain a theme of authenticity in that there's always going to be an element of it's made up to have a fictional character meet a a real one. But if it feels authentic and it's done in the matter, he's a hostage. And also he, he didn't like his captors. He didn't like the English as he would have thought of them. Why on earth would he serve the son of the King of England? So, you know, I use the device of he saves Richard's life. Well, Richard saves him from being beaten up one day because he doesn't know who he is. And then he saves Richard's life And then soon after, Richard saves his life. So they become comrades in arms. And then he's asked to become a squire. And so he does. And then, like any soldiers, like men who joined the Roman army or Irishmen who joined Wellington's army, when you fight beside men, it doesn't matter what color their skin is or what religion they are. They're your mates and your comrades. So he becomes essentially a very loyal follower of Richard. And then he's by his side the whole way through the tumultuous events of the 1180s right up to 1189, which is when the book ends with the
1: coronation in Westminster Abbey. That is definitely something I got when reading the book, was that it said it starts with a rather hostile, you could say, Irishman, hostile to the English, wanting to go back, wanting to attack these people who had invaded his homeland. But as you say, as the book progresses, these divisions are healed, as it were, in the service of this legendary figure.
0: A trumpet shrilled an alarm. It is over, I said to John. The Duke must retreat. That is not a word he understands, John muttered. He knew our master well. I stared in disbelief as Richard attacked the timbers. Even at a distance, I could see splinters flying. Given enough time, I thought they might eventually cut their way through. But the call to arms had been answered. Shouts and cries came from inside the wall. If the Duke did not retreat, the enemy crossbowmen would shoot at them every step of the way back over the bridge. Mail afforded good protection, but at close range, the deadly square-ended bolts often punched through to cause terrible injuries.
2: There are parallels in all the books I write with my own life. Sometimes they're only passing. Sometimes they're more than that. And this book has parallels with my life, being an Irishman coming over to England. I mean, my wife's English and my kids are obviously growing up here. But it was a culture shock and it took me a long time to, I don't know what the word is, just to sort of not really care anymore, I guess. Just go, well, here I live and I pay my tax and, you know, life is pretty much the same in many ways as it is in Ireland. And yeah, it was an interesting thing Obviously, it's from a military point of view, but I know this from just military accounts I've read of all periods, particularly when they're written by the ordinary soldiers. So from World War Two, or from Vietnam or from World War I that, you know, once you're fighting with men and I used to play rugby and I always have that in my head as well. You know, you don't know your rugby teammates that well when you join and it doesn't really matter what they do. But once you're all in the team and, you know, you'll do what you have to do to help them to try and win the game or whatever. And so that's how I tried to square it away in the book. And then I ended up having to think, especially in the second book, I've got to keep mentioning his Irish homeland, where he came from. And he wants to get back to that because years are going by here. And I always think of Utred, Bernard Cornwell's character, who wants to get back Bebenberg, his home. It has got to be that tag there for the reader because hopefully if I ever write a fourth book he'll end up going back to Ireland in the reign of King John and potentially getting back his lands or or not who knows <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, that's fascinating and you mentioned Irish English Norman one thing which really struck out whilst reading this book was the French dominance of the English nobility at the time they're speaking French they're not speaking English do you think this is a common misconception that English was spoken by Richard?
2: Oh, yeah, I think possibly. I never like to say, oh, the average member of the public doesn't know this or whatever, because often they do. But I would think it's probable because of TV and film that people think Richard the Lionheart spoke English when, in fact, you know he didn't. So I had the curious scene, not giving anything away, but there's a fight scene in southern England before the hero, Ferdia, when he's just meeting Richard and you have him, Whose native language is Irish, with a Welsh boy who's his sidekick being ambushed by some outlaws who are English and being essentially peasants would have spoken English, and Richard, who would have only spoken French. And I thought, how on earth do I write the conversation of this scene? And you have to just say, he said in English. And then the reader hopefully will just go, oh yeah. But I sort of explained it a bit that. The hero, Ferdia, he's got bad French, but his Irish is understandable by the Welsh guy because they're actually closely linked. And then the peasants are speaking English and he doesn't really understand what they're saying. And so it was quite a weird scene that hopefully I conveyed accurately to the reader because obviously the whole novel's written in English and I don't say Richard said in French, but it's explained that he is speaking in French at the beginning. Yeah, it was a funny situation. The average poor old Englishman who was... After 100 years, they were probably used to the Normans as they were, but they were now English nobility because the only people called Normans at that time were the men from Normandy. The ruling class, Richard and all his nobles, were no longer Normans, they were English. But the French regarded them as English, but the English English probably didn't regard them as English. They would have still hated them because they were still the overlords, if you like.
1: That must have been a challenge to sort through whilst writing this book, I can imagine, the language issue
2: yeah because I wanted to have Irish words and Irish place names initially when I wrote the novel I had the prologue uh, involved a monk and there was reference to this monk and then he was at the beginning of some chapters and I used that as a way of having the old man who is relating the story pronounce the word because the monk was English and didn't understand or couldn't say the Irish words and then my editor because I hadn't didn't have that at the beginning of every chapter. She kind of went, mm, "You've either got to have it in every chapter, or you've got to take it out." So I took it out, but I still worked in some Irish pronunciations. And then at the back, obviously, in the author's notes, there are a few more details on that. But yeah, it was good fun actually. It was really, really funny to have an Irish character, and I actually called him after my son. And I made him from pretty much where I'm from in Ireland because I thought, "Why not? <laughs> Makes more sense." And I know what the scenery's like. <laughs>
1: Did that personal connection help when writing this book? And also because so much of it is set in either England, Wales or Western France in Aquitaine, were you able to visit these places to get an idea of what it may have looked like back in the 12th century?
2: It certainly helped writing the book. I mean, obviously, my son, he's only 13 and he's not a soldier and he doesn't fight. So it's very loosely based on him. It's not really him. It's his name. But, yeah, it did help. And then visiting the places, Chepstow Castle, where he was brought, I've been there, an amazing place. They have the original door from the time of Richard the Lionheart, a 12th century door. He probably rode through that. And then the sites in Ireland I know... There's very little left in sort of other parts of England, like in Winchester and so on. There are no ruins. But last summer, when we went on our family holiday, we happened to go to Aquitaine, completely by chance, obviously. And I visited absolutely loads of the sites that are in the book. We went to stay in the Limousin, which is east of Bordeaux. It was the least populated part of France in the medieval period. And it still is. And it's absolutely glorious. So quiet. And... The place is just littered with 12th century churches and quite a few ruined castles and even not so ruined castles. And so, yeah, I visited a lot of the places in the book, which really helps me. I try always to do it. It's not always possible, sometimes because of security situations like in the Middle East and so on. But uh, when I can, I do. And hopefully that feeds through into
1: the book. Yes, it must have been a bit different, you know, from writing ancient Rome and having to go, as you said, maybe to the Middle East or to the central Mediterranean, eastern Mediterranean to have a book set in the Western Mediterranean where it is possible without security issues to visit most of these sites.
2: Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I've only had the security issues a couple of times at places in southeast Turkey. I couldn't go when I wrote my first trilogy, and that was before ISIS, but it was still on the border with Syria and wasn't particularly safe because of the situation with the Kurds. But I went to Israel in January, luckily, before the coronavirus outbreak, and that was for researching the second book. And I'm so glad I did because it's the most extraordinary place. And I was able to visit lots of Roman sites as well as all the sites that Richard used when he was marching south and trying to get to Jerusalem. It's a shame. It's just the way the world is. You sometimes can't go to places, but coronavirus aside, obviously, the rest of Europe. So most of my Roman novels, to be fair, if I want to go to Sicily or I want to go to Italy or I've been to Greece to get Roman stuff and Spain and so on, it's usually quite easy. Pretty cool as well. It's a great perk of being a full-time author that you can... Fly to Italy or Spain and drive around going to visit museums and ancient ruins, and it is actually part of your job. It's surreal. I still get a huge kick out of it because it's the kind of thing I used to do anyway before I had kids. You know, I'd go traveling, and those are the sites I used to visit, and now I do it for my living, which is brilliant.
1: That sounds like the life. And walking in Roman armour from you know, to Rome itself. I mean, that is the life <laughs> epitomised. Let's talk about one of the other main figures in your book, the Lionheart. One of the main non-fictional figures, William the Marshal. How fun was it researching his life and including him in the book?
2: Yes, William Marshall was an amazing man and the greatest knight he's known as and a truly astonishing character who managed to negotiate a path through life where he rose from being a relatively minor noble to the trusted advisor of the heir to the English throne and then no less than four monarchs. So obviously people rise to power and they often fall when a new ruler takes the throne, wherever that civilization may be. But Marshall managed to stay in with Henry II's oldest son, called the Young King, and he then became an advisor to Henry II, and then Richard I, and then John, and then Henry III, who came after him. And what's remarkable is that quite a lot of his life is known about, mainly because of an amazing piece of poetry. It was written as a sort of eulogy to him, probably paid for by his son or one of his close relations after he died. And it survives in its entirety, this 15,000, 18,000 line poem, which is just a gold mine for anyone who wants to write about that period. And You know, at once he sort of presented himself as being someone who could have been one of the main characters. But for a number of reasons, mainly because I'd still be writing book one if I'd put him in it like that. And the book would be a quarter of a million words and my publisher wouldn't be very happy with me. But also because there are holes in his earlier life, especially that we don't know what he was doing. And he wasn't a sidekick of Richard. So the book was about Richard therefore I had to keep the focus on him so I could only have Marshall in it when his path intersected with Richard and or he was advising one of the brothers who wasn't getting on with Richard in other words there was something to do with Richard that Marshall was involved with so sort of with reluctance but also I was just being decisive because authors our tendency is to just go oh that's really exciting I'll write about that and you can just meander all over the place and. It isn't necessarily a good book then. And the editor goes, why have you written five chapters about this guy? Think George R.R. R. Martin. The reason his fourth book is a load of waffle is because he just wrote what he wanted to write and his editor didn't rein him in. And if you've read A Song of Ice and Fire, you'll know that most people really struggle with book four because it's about loads of minor characters wandering around Westeros doing not very much and that's an author just being allowed to do it every once because he's George R. R Martin so William Marshall yeah he's in the book but there are parts where he has much more to do in the book than others but it was yeah it was very exciting and I did think oh my goodness I'd love to write a full novel about him but Christian Cameron's doing that so it's just as well I stuck <laughs> to Richard.
1: <laughs> with the other peripheral figures William the Marshall has these connections with richard's family and of course it was a very turbulent time for them you mentioned earlier how eventually their king his father king henry ii would have these issues with most of his children rebelling did you want to also get across in this book the internal challenges richard would face and was going to face from family members
2: Yes, he had a very troubled relationship with his father and, and a not brilliant one with his brothers. So just to sort of quickly explain in the 1173, 1174, probably influenced heavily by their mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was a very powerful woman who would brought an enormous swathe of territory as her dowry, probably more, almost more than Henry had had before he married her. The three sons, the young king, Geoffrey and Richard, rose in rebellion against their father and they failed and they were reconciled with the father, but the mother wasn't. Eleanor was then kept a prisoner pretty much for the rest of Henry's life. But then in 1182-83, two of the brothers, Geoffrey and the young king, rose up against the father again and Richard stayed loyal. So eight or nine years before, he'd rebelled with them Then he didn't and he stayed with his father and then both those brothers died and he became the eldest son and essentially the heir to the throne. His father wouldn't name him as heir so the relationship with his father became very troubled because I'm your eldest son but you won't name me as heir which means obviously that you might not become king. And so it was very important that I tried to convey that as much as possible and it was good fun to do because after 13 novels... I think it's angus donald a guy who writes books about robin hood i think he said a few years ago there are only so many ways you can write how you chop a man to bits with a sword and i feel that after 14 novels i don't want to write endless fight scenes because they're actually boring if that's all the book is and so being able to have this really twisted family politics where you're my friend now and next year you're not because obviously families real families it's not usually hopefully so bitter that it ends up with war, at least open war, but it's very complicated and people are friends with one sibling and then they might not be and then they get back together again and so on and obviously relationships with parents can be difficult too and it was the level of intrigue and just sort of fighting was, I haven't seen that in the Roman period, anything like it. It screamed out that it had to be in the book so hopefully I managed to convey that as well as possible without making it the central basis of the novel because There are also holes in what we know, and you had to have stuff
1: about the fictional character as well. Because that's interesting, you mentioned the Romans there, going back to the Romans. Is there any account of any family feuds in Roman times that could rival the amount of detail, the amount of information we have about the feud between Richard, John, the brothers, and their parents? Yes,
2: I think it was... The son of Germanicus, who is a step-grandson, I think, of Augustus, the first emperor, his son was Caligula, and his mother was Agrippina. There was a lot of intrigue. Germanicus was possibly murdered in about 19 AD, and then Agrippina poisoned various people to make sure that her sons would be more likely to take the purple than the rightful heir to the throne. There are a couple of really juicy details in that. But I much prefer, I've written one trilogy set in the Empire, but all my other books are set in the Republic. I much prefer the Roman Republic, so I can't see myself writing that. Plus, I want to write more non-Roman books, other than a trilogy about Richard the Lionheart. So I was at a talk Bernard Cornwell gave a few years ago, sitting there listening Obviously, it was a great talk, but he was being asked things like, would he ever finish his Starbuck Chronicles, which are American Civil War that aren't finished and so on. And he said, I came to the sad realization a number of years ago, I have far more novels in my head than I will ever get to write. So no, I won't finish this series or whatever. And I just looked at him thinking I'm 44 or 5 or whatever I was. Oh, no, because I have that many ideas in my head as well. I will never manage to write them all. Well, that was not a happy realisation because before that I'd naively thought oh I'll always manage to do it but the trouble is you just get more and more and more ideas as life goes on, you read a book about this you visit a place and someone tells you a great story and you think oh I could write a book about that
1: It's never ending, that's the dream for a writer but also the bane
2: Yeah, yeah I think every writer's the same probably Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show
0: Historical Fiction